0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary, Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, Red Moon Rising. All right, well, we learned from our study back in chapter 5 that at some point in the future, the father is going to give his son a very special scroll. And we believe that that scroll that the father is going to give to his son is the inheritance that the son is going to receive when he actually comes back literally to this earth. And so what will the inheritance include? Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm written a 1,000 years B.C. It's a prophetic psalm. It talks about the reign of the Messiah over this earth. Psalm chapter 2 tells us, in that psalm, the father says this to his son. He says, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And so John's in heaven, he sees the vision, he sees the father hand the scroll to the son, and we believe that that scroll is nothing else except the title deed to the earth. And we believe that one day Jesus is gonna open up that title deed, and he's gonna read all about how he will receive the nations as his heritage and the ends of the earth as his possession when he comes back as the son of David, as the king of kings and lord of lords to rule and reign on this earth. Now, before the Lord can open the scroll, he has to loose, break, open up the seven seals. Now, by way of review, what are the seals? The seals of the scroll are the divine judgments that are released during the tribulation in order to evict those who are in rebellion to God. It's God's wrath, it's God's judgment. Now some people say, oh, I just have a hard time with that. I have a hard time believing God's gonna judge the earth and evict people off the earth that are in rebellion to him. You know, nothing like that's ever happened before and I don't really think it's ever gonna happen in the future. Well, don't you remember that it has happened before? Anybody remember Noah? You see, in the time of Noah, the Bible says in Genesis 6-5 that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. Can you imagine how wicked it was In Noah's day. And by the way, our culture is not very far behind that. Every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And so does anybody remember how God responded to man's wickedness? He sent sent divine judgment. He sent a flood, and that flood evicted off of the earth those who were in rebellion to God. Now, Jesus had a lot to say about the end times. Matthew 24, at some point during our Verse-by-verse study of Revelation, we're gonna have to tackle Matthew 24 all the way through. But in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this about the end times, I'll just quote it to you. For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Okay, so check this out. Jesus, talking about the end days. As were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Okay, so what were they doing in Noah's day? They were eating, they were drinking, they were getting married, they were living life as normal, right? But Noah got into an ark and closed the door and judgment came. A flood swept them all away, sudden destruction. In the same way, before the tribulation, people are gonna be eating, they're gonna be drinking, they're gonna be getting married, they're gonna be living life as usual, but all of a sudden, no one's going to expect it. Sudden judgment is going to come down and destroy much of the earth. Now, God is not going to destroy the earth with flood waters because we all know every time we see a rainbow that God promised back in Genesis that I'll never again destroy the earth with a flood. So the destruction during the last seven years of history as we know it that destruction is going to come in the form of seven seal judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven bowls of wrath poured out on the earth. Judgment is coming. And some people say, well, I think that's mean. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not mean, it just makes sense. You see, when a king comes back to set up his kingdom, Why in the world would a king allow anybody who's in open rebellion to him to continue to live in that open rebellion? You see, this is why it's important to accept Jesus not just as your Savior, but as the Lord of your life. This is why it's important for you and I to surrender to Jesus right now, because here's, here's the truth. The people who are alive during the last seven years of the tribulation... When Jesus actually comes back, he's coming back as a king and he is going to set up a kingdom of righteousness. And so he will not allow anybody who rejects his authority to continue to live in his kingdom. Now what you gotta understand is that the Lord is not willing that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And what you have to understand is that during the last seven years of history as we know it, God is gonna do everything possible to get mankind's attention so that they'll turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. He's going to send 144,000 Jewish evangelists. We're going to see that next week, and that's going to bring, that preaching is going to bring a great revival. He's going to send two witnesses to share the gospel. He's actually going to send an angel that's going to fly around the earth and proclaim the eternal gospel. But here's the sad thing. Millions and millions of people are going to continue on in their rebellion. They're not going to repent, and so God will judge them. And so last week, we saw the opening of the first four seals of the title deed of the earth. We saw the summoning of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and we saw that the first rider riding in represented global peace. It's the Antichrist, and when he comes, he's not coming as a villain. He's coming as this magnanimous, charismatic world leader who preaches peace and prosperity, and he's gonna deceive most of the world. And then that will be followed by the second horseman, which is global warfare, and then the third horseman, which is global famine, and that all culminates in the fourth horseman of the apocalypse, which is global death. Lots of people dying, a fourth of the world's population wiped out, we believe, most likely, before the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, today, we're going to look at the opening of the fifth and sixth seals of the scroll, two seals that are very different from one another. And you say, how so? How are the two seals different? Well, the fifth seal will show events taking place in heaven And the sixth seal is gonna show events taking place on the earth. The fifth seal is all about the cries of martyrs in heaven. And the sixth seal is all about the cries of monarchs on earth. The fifth seal is all about the supplication of departed souls in heaven. But the sixth seal, it's all about the screams of people who are left behind. And so let's dig in today in chapter, uh, five, chapter six, verse nine. And when he opened the, what seal? Fifth seal. I saw under the altar, and by the way, John is still up in heaven having this vision. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. You see why they're martyred here? For the word of God and for their witness. And so, they're sharing, teaching the word of God, kinda like what we're doing right now, and they're witnessing the reality of Jesus, kinda like what we're doing right now. And so, verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice. Okay, so they're up in heaven, they're under this altar, and they're praying. O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And so John is up in heaven, he's having the vision, he sees these souls of martyred people who who, who died for their faith in Christ, and they're praying and they're asking God, how long, God, how long until you make things right? All right, so if you're taking notes, what does the fifth seal represent? It represents the prayers of the tribulation martyrs. The prayers of the tribulation martyrs. Now, back when I was around 20, I took eschatology in Bible college, eight-hour credit hour class, book like that thick, called Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost. And back then, I became, um, I took the position that the church will not be here when God pours out his wrath during the seven year tribulation period. I believe it's the most, uh, it's the, the position that makes the most sense biblically, and for the last 30 years, I have never uh, changed my position. And so we believe the church will be raptured before God's wrath is poured out on the, on the world. And so, even though the church will be gone, What you need to know is that millions of people are still gonna get saved during the tribulation period. Again, how many of you guys know God is not willing that anybody should perish? Right, God God does not take any joy uh, in in seeing people reject him and and die and go to a Christless eternity. And so what is he gonna do? We'll see it next week. He's gonna send 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Can you imagine 144,000 Apostle Pauls running around the earth, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ up under the anointing of the Holy Spirit? That's gonna bring a revival that we're gonna study next week. And so what's gonna happen is that these new believers, these Gentiles, some of them are Jews, they come to faith in Jesus as a result of the witnessing of 144,000 Jewish evangelists. They get saved, and what do they do? They began to share their faith openly, publicly, with friends and family and neighbors and coworkers. And what you have to understand is that at that time, the global leader, the Antichrist, and all the other leaders of the nation are opposed to the gospel. And so they're not going to tolerate the gospel being preached openly, and a great persecution will come about. And so concerning this time, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, then they will deliver you up to tribulation. Some of your translations actually say affliction or persecution. And so then they will deliver you up to persecution and put you to what? Okay, these are believers dying for Jesus, martyrdom. And you will be hated by how many nations? You see how hostile the world, I mean, you think the world's hostile to the gospel now. Times that by about about a million. Kind of like how tolerant are people of the gospel in the 1040 window today? Not tolerant. In fact, if you preach openly the gospel, you could lose your head very easily today. And so that's how it's gonna be all across the world. All nations will hate believers in Jesus for his name's sake. And so during that seven-year tribulation, believers are gonna be hunted down. They're gonna be murdered. Question, what happens to a believer to their spirit when they die? Absent from the body means present with the Lord. And so immediately, just, just imagine what's going on here, 144,000 Jewish evangelists share the gospel, millions and millions of people get saved, they began to share the love of Christ, the rulers of the world, that can't happen, take them in the back room somewhere, chop their head off or kill them in some way, and then immediately, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now John sees under the altar all these souls and they're praying to God, oh sovereign God, how long How long before you will judge and avenge our blood? What they're saying is, Father, are you gonna allow evil to continue unabated on the earth? Are you gonna allow violence and murder and rape and child abuse and abduction and and, and immorality? Are you just gonna allow that to continue on the earth indefinitely? How long, Lord, until you do something about this? Now, this prayer is not about their desire for revenge. This prayer is about their desire for justice. They wanna see good win over evil. How many of you guys would love to see good win over evil? Right, is that your heart? Well, guess what? Jesus is gonna come back and clean up the mess, and good's gonna win over evil. Now, they're praying, and then they get an answer to their prayer. Look at verse 11. Then they were given, each of them were given, what color robe? White robe, everybody please look at me. This is important if you're new to the the church or new to the Bible. White robe, that represents the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. That represents the only way anybody will ever go to heaven. You see that? I'm so glad we got to spend the whole year last year teaching verse by verse by verse through the uh, book of Romans. And I'm so glad uh, that we got to share the true gospel, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in who alone? Christ alone. And so when we choose Christ, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he did on Calvary 2,000 years ago, because of his death, his burial, his resurrection, when we choose Christ, He clothes us with this white robe. We exchange our sin for his righteousness. What a deal. And we are right in the sight of God. And so these people receive white robes showing how they got saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And then it says in verse 11 that they're told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed, martyred, as they themselves had been. And so these souls are praying. They receive white robes. Uh, you can't put a robe on a, on a soul, okay? So this is, um, this is um, metaphoric type of language, but the, the robe definitely um, uh, shows the righteousness of Jesus Christ and they're praying and they're asking God for justice, and what are they told? They're told to rest. Hey, rest a little longer. Don't worry about it because the Lord is gonna come back and he is going to mete out justice upon the people who've killed you. Don't worry about it because the Lord is gonna come back. He's gonna make every wrong right. But before the Lord comes back, here's what you need to know there are other people, your brothers, still down on the earth who are alive, and God has ordained some of them to die the same death that you died. God has ordained that a lot of your brothers on the earth must also be martyrs for his glory. Speaking about martyrdom, did you guys know that in the 20th century, more Christians died for their faith than in the prior 19 centuries. Let that sink in for a minute. From 1900 to 1999, more Christians died for their faith than from the time Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father until 1899. All those people that died combined didn't match the number of people in the 20th century who gave their lives to Christ. I believe in our 21st century that even more are going to die. But what you gotta understand is that God, who is sovereign, knows who those future martyrs are. He knows their name. He's ordained their death for his glory. And here's what I know. I'm in America and I'm preaching to Americans. And in America, we have a hard time wrapping our mind around that type of truth. Wait, what did what, you just say? God ordains some people to die martyrs' deaths for his glory? Yeah. Absolutely. Now, the reason we have a hard time wrapping our mind around truths like that is because we live in a bubble. And this is why I always encourage you guys, man, save up and go on a missions trip, go to a third world country if you've never been there before, drive on their dirt roads, eat their guinea pig, go into their little huts that don't even have concrete floors but dirt floors, see how they live, drive around where there's no traffic lights, there's no stop signs, there's no rules. We'll pray for you as you do that. Minister to those orphans Listen to how passionate those preachers are every single Sunday. And by the way, they don't preach 40 minutes, they preach like an hour and a half. And if church starts at 10, that means it might start at 11 because you never know. You're, they don't care about stuff like that. But, but, but go, go with us and what you'll do is you'll come back with an attitude of gratitude, thanking God for everything that we have here in America. That's why I encourage you to go. And so we have a hard time as American Christians wrapping our minds around these types of truth. Why? We live in a bubble. Why? Because we get these messages in American churches that are self-centered, superficial messages. It's all about me. And so it's no wonder that when we hear the true teaching of Jesus that every believer on every continent, including America, needs to, if you're listening, say amen here, needs to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Do you guys remember that verse? Deny yourself. What does that mean? That you and I need to deny our selfish, self-centered sin nature. When somebody offends us, guys, when your wife offends you and you've been holding a grudge now for three days and you refuse to talk to your wife, here's the question I have for you. When you sinned against Jesus, did he hold a grudge against you? Did he refuse to speak to you for two, three, four, five, seven days? No. See, it's it's our selfishness. It's our self-centeredness. And so we're supposed to deny ourselves and then take up our cross. What does that mean? That we gotta actually carry a big cross around every day? Or wear one around your neck? No. That means the, the cross was a tool of suffering. And so what that means is that I am willing to do whatever God calls me to do even if it's not comfortable, even if it's painful. Right? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And here's how you follow Jesus. You actually go to his book and you read his words and then you do what he says. That's pretty simple. And so that's what the Lord is calling us as Christians to do. And so that means that if the Lord wants you to share your faith this week, even though it's uncomfortable, you gotta do it. That means that the Lord is calling some of you guys to go out and plant a church, take that step of faith, but pastor, I don't know how it'll be funded. I don't know how I'm gonna get paid. Is God calling you to do it? Where God guides, he provides. And so you gotta just go, and you gotta do it. That means God may be calling some of you to the mission field. He wants you to move to that third world nation. And here's why that's important. It's not about God serving us. It's about us serving God. That's the Christian life. Even when it's uncomfortable, he may, I hope not, he may even want some of you to be persecuted and die for the faith. But our attitude should be, so be it, if God's ordained it. You see, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was on his face, sweating great drops of blood, he wasn't looking for what was convenient or comfortable or pain-free. No, what did he say? Father, not my will, but your will be done. And what did that lead him to? A cross. You see what the real Christian message is? Not always the one you hear on TV And so the question is, are you willing to pray the same prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane? Are you willing this this afternoon here in this service to say, Father, I surrender completely to you and I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I don't care what the um, uh, ramifications are. Uh, I'll, I'll do it. I surrender to you. I dare some of you to do that. Id dog double dare you to do that, and you watch how awesome your life becomes. What a venture! I mean, I mean, come on. This is not in my notes, but come on, aren't you tired sometimes of getting up in the morning, eating breakfast, going to work, putting your eight hours in a little cubicle, coming home, watching two three hours of TV, and going to bed, and then getting up the next morning and doing the same thing over and over. Is that really why God puts you on this earth? (laughs) Psalm says, teach us to number our days that we may grow a heart of wisdom. And I really believe that in the life of this local church, God is going to call people to the mission field. He's gonna call people to plant churches. He's gonna call people to uh, maybe come on our staff as we continue to grow he's going to call people to serve, but but here's here's where the heart's got to change because because if you're coming to church and your attitude is what can I get out of church today as opposed to i'm coming to church with an attitude of who can I bless and give to today if you're still over here somewhere then it may it may take a little more sanctification and I better stop because none of this is in my notes. And when I deviate from my notes, I get in big trouble. All right, so the scene now changes from the events in heaven to events down on earth. Look at verse 12. And when he opened, what seal? Six Six seals. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood, red moon rising. And the stars the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky, verse 14, vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. What does this sixth seal represent? If you're taking notes, simply geological and astronomical upheavals. Now, lots of debate among scholars, good solid Bible guys, about when these seals occur. Some believe six, uh, seven seals are followed chronologically by seven trumpets, followed chronologically by seven bowls of wrath, um, and a lot of good guys say, no, they kind of overlap a little bit. I take the latter position. I believe that this sixth seal is gonna be opened at the end of the tribulation, right before the Lord returns. And the reason I believe that is because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. The Lord said immediately, and what's the word? After the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And so the same events that John just described that are associated with the sixth seal are the events that Jesus is laying out right here. And so what happens right after these events? What's the next verse? Jesus says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will do what? Mourn. You see the different attitude between us as believers here in the church, and when you guys, a little while ago, were singing about, the clouds swinging low, and Jesus coming back, and you're cheering, you see the different attitude here? The different attitude is that by the end of the tribulation, people have rejected Jesus Christ for so long that they're mourning when he comes back. They want to be the master of their own soul. They don't want another master ruling over them. And so all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so after the geological and astronomical upheavals associated with the sixth seal, then Jesus Christ will come. There are four major upheavals that are described after the sixth seal is opened. So the first thing that we see is a great earthquake, okay? And so it says in verse 12 that when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a what? Great earthquake, all right. So the worst earthquake that I could find in my research, the worst earthquake in recorded history happened in May of 1960 in a place called Valdivia, Chile. And so this earthquake in Chile was so powerful it registered around 9.5 on the magnitude scale, cost hundreds of millions, maybe even upwards to a billion dollars of damage. The earthquake was so powerful, imagine a map, imagine South America, the earthquake in Chile was so powerful that it sent off a tsunami that hit Hawaii 6,600 miles away. You say, what does a 9.5 magnitude earthquake feel like? It's the equivalent of a 1,000 atomic bombs erupting simultaneously. And so the same thing that happened in Chile in May of 1960 is gonna happen, not just in one area, but all across the entire world. Did you see what it says in verse 14? Every mountain and island will be removed from its place. The entire earth is gonna shake right before the Lord comes. The second thing that's associated with the sixth seal, if you're taking notes, is a darkened sun and a blood red moon. Now, I remember a few years ago, all the hype about the four blood moons. You guys remember this? And so, a tetrad, four, a tetrad of lunar eclipses were scheduled to occur between April of 2014 and September of 2015. Four blood moons and so many Christians got all unglued. How many of you guys understand that a lot of times when we teach end time events, some Christians just get a little kooky, right? And so everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people became unglued. Some people said, the Lord is coming back in 2015. Other people said, something significant is going to happen in Israel. And so books were written. Some some were good. I'm thinking of one in particular that was good. Um, a, A lot of them were not good. Sermons were preached. People started getting ready for the rapture. Now, personally, I ignored all the hype. And those of you guys who were around back then, you remember, um, I, I just took no position. I, I, people would come to me after church, you know, their eyes were really wide, and they would lay out the whole scenario from whatever sermon of whatever guy or, or lady they are listening to, and I, after they were sharing all this, I would respectfully say, basically, I would say, it doesn't mean anything, right? You say, why? Here's, here's why. I don't base my eschatology or teaching on end times event, I don't base that on theories, I just base it on the clear teaching of God's word. And that's what we have to stick with. But nonetheless, people got all involved in the hype and I just wanna give you one example of what people were saying. I want us to be discerning Christians, especially when it comes to end time events because here's the thing, more books will be written in the future. And so maybe I could save you a $14.99 on Amazon, Okay. <laughs> So one of the things people were saying was there's going to be four blood moons between 2014, 2015, and something significant has to happen. We really believe something's going to happen, because when you go back and you look at former tetrads of four sets of lunar eclipses, you see that significant things happened in Israel. For example, in 1948, Israel became a nation. And then in 1949 to 1950, there was four blood moons. The four blood moons were a sign that Israel became a nation, but there's a a problem with that kind of logic, namely that signs come before the event, not after the event. If I'm driving north on 995 and I'm looking for Midway Road, but for some reason there's no sign, and then later on when I get around Orange Avenue in Fort Pierce, I see Midway Road Exit. That's not a sign, that's a mistake, (laughs) right? And so Israel became a nation in 1948. Four blood moons in 1949 and 1950, who cares? It came after. And by the way, when you look at all the sets of four blood moons, not always did something significant happen. And so, hey, we gotta be discerning Guess what? Here we are in 2017, the Lord has not come back. Nothing significant happened in 2014, 2015. What is the lesson? If you're with me, please say amen. Amen. The lesson is you avoid people who set dates for the Lord's return. Don't listen to them. And the reason why you can't listen to them is because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour. Jesus said, the son of man comes at a point when you think he's not gonna come. I'm paraphrasing here, but that's what he said in essence. And number two, here's the second lesson, avoid hype that is built on theories and not the clear verse-by-verse teaching of God's word. And so, look at verse 12. Let's see if we can find out why there's a blood-red moon. Verse 12 says... When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and, okay, here's the inference, then the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood. And so it seems to me that the earthquake is what will cause the sun and moon to look the way that John described um, them to look, not a lunar eclipse, I don't think a lunar eclipse has anything to do with what John said or Jesus said or Joel said back in the Old Testament. Scientist Dr. Henry Morris said, and I quote, the great earthquake described here for the first time in history is worldwide in scope. The vast worldwide network of unstable earthquake belts around the world suddenly will begin to slip and fracture on a global basis and a gigantic earthquake will ensue. This is evidently and naturally accompanied by tremendous volcanic eruptions spewing vast quantities of dust and steam and gases into the upper atmosphere. And so as a result of the earthquake and as a result of the volcanic eruptions that are happening all over the world, as a result of the dust and the steam and the gases being shot up into the upper atmosphere, that's what... I believe, causes the sun to be darkened and the, blue, and the moon to have a blood red shade. Does that make sense to you guys? All right, this just seems more plausible to me. The third thing we see, number three, if you're taking notes, is a massive meteor shower. Jesus said in verse 13, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Now, we know these are not actual stars. You say, how do you know? Because actual stars are so big that if an actual star got even close to the earth, life as we know it would end. We'd all be incinerated instantly. Did you know that the smallest star is called a red dwarf? And did you know that you can fit 1,321 earths in one red dwarf? Pretty big. And so Jesus is not saying literal stars. In the Greek, the word is aster. And an aster can refer to any celestial body. It can refer um, to a meteor, an asteroid, a comet. And so what we have here in verse 13 is a meteor shower. Now, thank God in today, and in, 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 um, what happens astronomically is that when meteors come toward the earth, What happens usually to those meteors when they enter the Earth's atmosphere? They burn up. Aren't you glad for that? Right? Otherwise, we might be doing what we're gonna read here in a little while in verse 15. We may be running to hide in caves. But somehow, and by the way, some meteors have gotten through, and there's big craters out west to prove it. But somehow, because of these astronomical upheavals, these meteors at the end times actually get through, and Jesus, and John says that they actually rain down upon the earth. And I believe that is why people are running into caves in verse 15. But before we get to that, there's one more thing that we see, number four, if you're taking notes, is a receding sky. And that's in verse 14. It says that the sky vanished, like a scroll that is being rolled up. A, the sky vanishes. Now, Isaiah, when he was prophesying 700 BC about the day of the Lord, he wrote this in Isaiah 34:4. He said, the heavens above will melt away and disappear like a rolled up scroll. The stars will fall from the sky like withered leaves from a grapevine or shriveled figs from a fig tree. Again, that's Isaiah, that's in the Jewish Bible, your Old Testament, 700 B.C., and by the way, all the prophets, or most of them at least, prophesied about the day of the Lord, the last seven years of history as we know it. And so the heavens above will melt away. I personally have no idea what will cause this. Some of the people that I read this week said it's a massive storm. Other people said it's tornadoes. Other people say it's a nuclear explosion. We don't know. But what I want to focus in on is not how does it happen, but what I want to focus on is the heart of man. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, you would think that after all this stuff happens, that people would be falling on their knees and repenting. Crying out to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But instead of that, check out how people respond in verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth, kings, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and powerful, really quick, kings, great ones, generals, rich people, powerful people, but don't you know at the foot of the cross, the ground is level? Don't you know before an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, eternal, immutable, immortal, infinite God, that it doesn't matter if you're a king or a great one or a general or you're rich or you're powerful, that you are no better than the poorest person in Haiti. Do you you realize that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you realize that every single human being has absolute equal value? Do you understand that? No matter what your position, no matter how big your bank account is, no matter what the color of your skin is, part of the bad English ain't nobody better than somebody else. You get that? And do you realize that these people are not thinking about their position or their wealth when all this is happening? I hope you really believe that because if anybody has the audacity in their heart to think that they're superior to other people, God help you. Right? The kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of who? They know this is Jesus. They've heard the witness of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, the two witnesses, the angel flying around preaching the eternal gospel, salvation through, they know this is Jesus. Verse 17, for the great day of their, that's the father and son, their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand? Nobody. And so I want you to just imagine the scene, okay, as we wind down here. Great earthquake, the whole earth shaking. Volcanic eruptions all around the world. The sun is darkened, the moon looks like blood. Meteors are falling down to the earth. The sky is receding. And instead of repenting, instead of calling on God, these people, they call on Mother Nature. Mountains, rocks, Fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They heard the gospel, but they rejected the gospel. And that leads you to your last point. If people would embrace God's love now, they would absolutely escape his wrath later. And so you guys remember on Easter Sunday and you remember Niagara Falls illustration at the end of the message? If you weren't here, just like the waters of the Niagara keep pouring and pouring down, that's just like God's love. It just, in this age of grace we live in, it just keeps pouring and pouring and pouring down. The problem is there's a cup at the bottom of the falls and it's turned upside down. And the cup represents mankind. And mankind is empty and lost and full of themselves. But God still loves the world that He gave His one and only Son. And so all we have to do is turn the cup upside or right side up. And then we would know. It's called repentance and faith. And so maybe you're here today and you're not sure where you stand with God. That's okay. I was. I was there too in my life. I had no clue about any of this stuff. So maybe you're here today, you don't know where you stand with God, you don't know where you're going when you die, you don't even know if there is a heaven or hell. I, I just wanna say to you very clearly that the Bible is filled with hundreds of evidences that God is real, his son is real, Jesus died for your sins, here's why, because the penalty of your sin is death. And either you're gonna have to pay for your sins in hell forever, or you can turn your cup up and receive the free gift of Jesus' forgiveness because he paid for your sins already on the cross. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, We want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.